Okay, this morning's reading is Ezekiel chapter, chapter 18, verses 25 through 32. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions that he had committed, he shall surely live. He shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from, from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. This is the very word of God. This is the 10th in our series, 10th sermon in our series in Ezekiel, planning for 26 of them. You've probably already noticed that Ezekiel has 48 chapters. So if we're going to cover the entire book, preach through the whole book, which is what we are aiming to do. I was with some pastors this week. Uh, some other pastors said, what are you preaching on? I said, Ezekiel. And they said, whoa. And so, yeah, we're going to, we're attempting to work our way through the whole thing. And if we're going to do that in just 26 sermons, then of course, we've got to cover multiple chapters most weeks. So once again, this morning, we are attempting to cover three chapters, Ezekiel 17 through 19. And you might ask, how do you do that? How do you go about preaching through three chapters in one sermon? Well, there's a couple ways that we believe that this can be done. First of all, uh, we believe that the book of Ezekiel, it's the inspired word of God as it has been been given to us as it, has, as it is written, and therefore, we believe that the book is um, a cohesive unity, that there is reason why the book exists the way it does today, and the chapters are aligned the way they are. Secondly, and maybe the most helpful way when you're reading especially Old Testament books of the Bible, we should remember that like the rest of the Scripture, Ezekiel has something to tell us about the good news, about the gospel. Specifically, when we think of the gospel, we should think of it in its more comprehensive phrase, the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God. It's good for us to remember when we open our Bibles, the Bible is telling a story about the kingdom of God. The arrival of God's rule and reign over the earth that he made in the beginning and that he is jealous to redeem and restore for his glory. 
So the kingdom of God is, I think, the theme of the Bible that gives shape to every one of its parts. So as we're reading through the book of Ezekiel and covering three chapters like we attempt to do this morning, we should be thinking about the kingdom of God. What do these texts, what do these chapters tell us about the kingdom? And I think in these three chapters, we might say that chapter 17 tells us a little bit more about the planting of the kingdom of God. Chapter 18 tells us about the preservation of the kingdom. And chapter 19 warns us about the predators of the kingdom. The planting of the kingdom, the preservation of the kingdom, and the predators of the kingdom. Incidentally, those three Ps uh, might be framed another way. Chapter 17 is mostly about a parable. Chapter 18 is about a proverb. And chapter 19 is is a poem. So a parable, a proverb, and a poem. Let's take a look this morning at the kingdom of God in Ezekiel 17 to 19. We begin here in chapter 17, and here we find that the God of Israel, Yahweh, it's his covenant name, the God of Israel instructs Ezekiel to propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. So with that introduction to the 17th chapter, we are prepared to find in the following verses something of a puzzle Compounded by the fact that when the riddle, the puzzle, is put together, the picture that you see is its own puzzle, (laughs) a parable for the house of Israel. So a riddle in the form of a parable, prepare to be confused. What is chapter 17 all about? Well, in verses 3 through 6, as you're following along, you'll find that it's a parable about a great eagle who breaks a twig off a Lebanese cedar and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. After that, the eagle takes of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil and beside abundant waters. The seed sprouted and became a low-spreading vine that produced branches. Then, verses 7 to 8, the parable tells of another great eagle, The vine that we saw in the first few verses bends toward this eagle, hoping that it would water the vine even though it had already been planted on good soil by abundant waters. Verses 9 to 10 then present the moral of the tale. The vine, which could have grown deep, nourishing roots, will end up withering away so that anyone could easily pull it up from the ground. All right, so if you're wondering what all that means, here's the good news. Keep reading. Because in verses 11 to 15, we are given the interpretation of the parabolic riddle by God himself. Praise the Lord. We don't have to just simply guess at what these verses are about. He tells us what it means. And what we find in verses 11 to 15 is essentially the same story that God gave for the interpretation of Ezekiel's sign act back in in chapter 12. Once more, we find here the story of the fate of the Israelites who remained in Jerusalem, led by the last king, Zedekiah. The first great eagle is the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. 
He had taken some of the Israelites into exile, like Ezekiel, but he had also left one of the royal offspring, verse 13 says. It's a reference to Zedekiah. He had left him in Jerusalem. He had put him under an oath to remain loyal to him as the king of Babylon. But Zedekiah, we know historically, at this very moment, was in the process of rebelling against Babylon, against Nebuchadnezzar. And the way he was doing that by, was by appealing to the second great eagle, the Pharaoh of Egypt. The result of all of this, God says, as the moral of the tale goes, is that whatever future Israel in Jerusalem might have had, had they remained loyal to the oath they had made with Nebuchadnezzar, that future was now forfeited by their turning away from Nebuchadnezzar and aligning um, with Egypt. So because Zedekiah had broken his oath with Nebuchadnezzar, God declares in verse 16 that he will die in Babylon and that Pharaoh, the second great eagle, will be of no help to him in his rebellion. But I want you to take a look again at verse 19. Take a look at verse 19, Ezekiel 17, verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. Now notice, God says here that Zedekiah's obligations to Nebuchadnezzar were also, and more fundamentally, his obligations to his own God. God claims here in this very historical event, like these are not made-up stories. You can, you can read about these things in Wikipedia if you want, for crying out loud. Like these are real historical events. God says in these real historical events that God is the true king. God is the real actor in the moments of history. And verses 20 to 21 make it plain that when Nebuchadnezzar hauls Zedekiah off to Babylon, it is God himself who is bringing down that judgment upon Zedekiah. So, one thing becomes quite plain here if it hasn't been plain already before. The God of the Bible, when we open up the scriptures, the God of the Bible is the God of human history. He claims to be at work in the real moments of time and in the things that happen day by day. That little treaty that Zedekiah had with Nebuchadnezzar, God says, was Zedekiah's treaty with God. He claims to be the real actor. It's easy enough for us to forget this and relegate God's activity to the miraculous or otherwise unexplainable mysteries of life. But in verse 20, Zedekiah's treachery against Nebuchadnezzar is even more so his treachery against Yahweh. Now, there's no reason to suggest then that God has changed, that he has now pulled away from the everyday moments of life, that God is so far above the everyday circumstances of our life that he's unconcerned about the moments of our day. If you want to know what God is up to, you can keep up with the news of the day, or better yet, read some older history, or maybe 
just invite someone over to dinner and invite them to tell you their story. It's one of the best ways that we Christians can come to know our God. History is theology. Now, having said that, we know that history can be misinterpreted. Beware of those who claim to know the real meaning behind every historical event. Were it not for the revelation of God's interpretation of these historical events, a case could have just as easily been made that when Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem, hauled Zedekiah off to Babylon, a case could have easily been made that, well, the good guys lost. God abandoned his people. And that the gods of Babylon were, in fact, greater than Yahweh. This was, in fact, what many in Israel thought was the only possible conclusion that one could draw from what was happening right before their eyes. How could God seemingly turn against his own covenant with his people, his city, his land, his temple, his king, and still claim to be faithful? The events of history often remain as they were when Ezekiel delivered this oracle, a riddle and a parable. Things that defy easy interpretations. Don't make the mistake of claiming to know God's intention behind every moment in history. But also, don't make the mistake of ignoring the intention of God that has been made plain through his word. The Bible gives us plenty historical interpretations that greatly impact everything else in history. Remember in the parable that the first great eagle took a twig from a Lebanese cedar and carried it to a land of trade, set it in a city of merchants. Verse 4. We know that this refers to the exiles of Israel like Ezekiel who had already been deported to Babylonia. But here's an interesting thing. The Hebrew text here in verse 4, which is translated in the ESV as a land of trade, literally reads, the land of Canaan. Hmm. Now, that's strange because he's referring to the exiles who were taken away and not planted in Canaan, but in Babylon. That's why many of our translations render it a land of merchants instead of the land of Canaan. But this actually reminds us of Psalm 80, which reminisces on the Exodus describing it as God bringing a vine out of Egypt and planting it in Canaan to become a great vine higher than the mountains and the famed Lebanese cedars. You can read about it in Psalm 80, 8 to 13. This, then, is the riddle. God, having brought exiles to Babylon, was beginning a new exodus. He was replanting his vine in a new Canaan. So the little detail at the beginning of the parable that is quickly forgotten as the attention turned to the seed of the land and the vine that grew there, this little detail, this little sprig, is where God's activity, where God's salvation was to be found. The Davidic dynasty appears to be dead with Zedekiah's failed rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar. But the kingdom of God, God is declaring, is alive and well. 
though it will take some time for it to grow into the noble cedar described in verses 22 to 24. By the way, those verses, verses 22 to 24 in Ezekiel 17, remind me of Jesus' own comments on the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God like, Jesus asked, and to what shall I compare it? In Luke 13, he said this, it is like, you remember, a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. In other words, Ezekiel 17 is the story of the kingdom of God, preserved through Israel's long and tragic story, but slowly growing into a dominant, life-giving tree that brings nourishment to all creation. God has planted his kingdom in a new Canaan. Now, when we turn to chapter 18, we move from a parable to a proverb. Let's read the first two verses. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. In verse 3, God repudiates the proverb, and the rest of the chapter explains why he does so. What this chapter has in common with the preceding may be detected by what it also has to say about the kingdom of God. Chapter 17 tells us that God mysteriously, like a parable of a riddle, has replanted his kingdom in a new Canaan. This chapter can tell us about God's preserving the kingdom in succeeding generations. You see, the proverb under consideration here is relatively easy to understand. It essentially teaches that the children suffer the consequences for their parents' choices. Now, a proverb exists because it's a generally true statement. And all of us can see how it is true in many ways that the choices of one generation affect the lives of, a, of the next generation. In fact, God himself doesn't reject that kind of proverb wholesale. For in the Ten Commandments, God says, those who serve other gods will negatively affect their children to the third and the fourth generation. So the deal with a proverb is not in its general truthfulness, but in what particular cases a proverb is applied. You remember, for instance, in the Proverbs, we find back-to-back verses. One says, answer a fool according to his folly. And the next says, don't answer a fool according to his folly. And you say, well, which should I do? And the answer is, depends on the situation, right? That's what Proverbs are for. They are general true statements, but the truthfulness depends on the cases in which they are applied. Here's another example. We understand what is meant by the proverb, opposites attract. Perhaps you're sitting next to an opposite this morning. But we also know what it means by the proverb, birds of a feather flock together. So which is it? The truthfulness of a proverb depends upon the situation in which it is applied. 
So God here in chapter 18 is rejecting the application of this proverb to the fate of the land of Israel. It seems that this proverb was being used in the debate between the exiles already in Babylon and those who were still living in Jerusalem regarding the question of who had the right to the land of Israel. But God says that this proverb doesn't apply to that question. Instead, God declares, verse 4, all souls are mine and the soul who sins shall die. Now, this first point, all souls are mine, sets up God's claim over his people. His desire is for them. He wants them to live. He wants them to reign with him over his world. But the soul who sins shall die. This is God's absolute claim for total justice. It was first stated to Adam in Genesis 2.17 when God says, Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will die. So the question about who has the rights to the land, God says, cannot be answered as a cause and effect relationship between parent and child. Rather, it is a cause and effect relationship between God and his people. At the same time, as we read through the chapter, we notice that it is built on the test case of three succeeding generations. This is really important to understanding Ezekiel 18. In verses 5 to 9, we are told of the actions of a righteous man. In verses 10 to 13, we are asked to consider what happens if this righteous man fathers a son who is violent. Then in verses 14 to 18, the, the proverb asks us to consider again what happens if this wicked man fathers a son who turns from his father's wickedness and practices righteousness. Do you see it? It's three succeeding generations. A righteous man who gives birth to an unrighteous man who then has a child who turns away from the unrighteous and walks in the ways of God. So the key to understanding Ezekiel 18 then is not to focus on the relationship between God and every person individually, but to consider the relationship between God and each succeeding generation of his people. It is true, of course, that every person is individually accountable to God. Romans 2, 6 through 11, it's a classic text that speaks about that. But what Ezekiel 18 puts before us is the responsibility of God's people in each generation to do what is right, to live in continuity with the reality of his kingdom newly planted. I suppose it is something of a sign of growing old when you start to speak of the good old days of your childhood. I find myself doing that sometimes. Someone recently said to me that things were really good back in the 1940s and 50s. It wasn't my dad who said that. 
Uh, this person went on to bemoan the problems of the current generation. Oh, the good old days of the 40s and 50s, but oh, how terrible it is today. I get it. It's tempting to look back on the past with romanticism as you feel the pains of the present time. But here's the problem. This is simply not a biblical perspective that God's people should have. In some ways, of course, the world is getting worse and worse. Yes, the Bible says something like this in various places. 2 Timothy 2 and 3 come to mind. But, but, the Bible also tells us of God's ever-advancing kingdom on earth through his church and promises that the gates of hell will not stand against her. So, when you read your Bible, is the world getting better and better, or is the world getting worse and worse? (laughs) It's a parable. Perhaps our technological advances are a net loss rather than a gain. Maybe. But then again, I don't know about you, I'm grateful for the technology that quickly delivered a COVID vaccine to us. I may bemoan how distracted I can be by technology, but I'm also grateful that on Church Center today, Pastor Daryl's getting a message out to all of us. That's pretty awesome. Pretty cool. And I can communicate with the phone in my pocket with people literally on the other side of the planet. It's a pretty good day. And no matter where I go, I can reach my wife and communicate with her if she answers her phone. Better and better or worse and worse? Depends on how you use the proverb. But what God expects of his people is not so ambiguous. You see, in each generation, God expects his people to be faithful to him wherever they are in whatever time and place they may be. The righteous man in verses 5 through 9 is described as one who does what is just and right, who keeps my rules by acting faithfully. The wicked man in verses 10 to 13 is the one who does all these abominations. Let not one of God's people blame it on a previous nor present generation. We are called to live faithfully in our day, regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. Now, a major emphasis of the righteous living in these verses is on the expectation that God's people will pursue economic justice for all and fight against every form of exploitation. Well, of course, the kingdom of God is about his righteous, just rule over his world for all. And this could lead us into the political controversies of our day and the claim of both of our major political parties to have the best way to secure justice for all. There's a place for that, but God's people must be devoted to the ethics of God's kingdom, especially noted in the Sermon on the Mount. There we find a challenge to every kingdom of man, a vision of a world where those who mourn are comforted, where the hungry and thirsty are satisfied, and where the persecuted and oppressed are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God. To see God's kingdom vision come to pass, God's people in every generation 
must not concern themselves with political wins and losses because you will not see the kingdom of God in the perishing parties of power politics. How then will we see it? Look at verse 30. Repent, God says, and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. In verse 31, God says, cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. That is the way of the kingdom. God preserves it in his people who repent, who have a new heart and a new spirit. So how do you get one? How do you get a new heart? How do you get a new spirit? We turn to chapter 19. And notice the very first thing is that chapter 19 continues the argument of chapter 18. There's no, um, the word of the Lord came to me. It's just a continuation from chapter 18. Probably shouldn't be a, probably shouldn't be a chapter break here. <laughs> Ezekiel didn't put one there, in case you didn't know that. Um, we move here, though, from a proverb, from a parable to a proverb, and now to a poem. It's a lamentation for the princes of Israel, verse 1. The way to life, the way to a new heart and a new spirit that God says will be the possession of those who inherit his kingdom. The way to life in Ezekiel 19 is detected when we notice the way of death and don't go that way. Does that work? There's other ways that the Bible speaks of the way to life. But in Ezekiel 19, it's a warning. It's a lamentation. It's a poem that says, if you collude with evil and go this way, it will end in death. So the way to life may be detected when we see the way of death, when we see the, the predators of the kingdom of God, that God ensures will not survive, will not inherit his kingdom, and then in every generation, the people of God resolutely say, no, we're not going that way. We're turning away from that. So, the poem of lament in chapter 19 is cast in terms of the mother of the princes of Israel. And in verse 2, the mother is compared to a lioness who raises her young cubs. In verse 10, the metaphor changes to a vine in a vineyard. A lion, lioness, and a vine. Ezekiel didn't come up with this. These two metaphors are found earlier in our Bibles in Jacob's blessing of Judah in Genesis 49, 9 through 11. And there, it in, and because of that, it indicates that just like the two chapters before it, Ezekiel 19 still has the same subject in mind, and that is the fate of Israel's Davidic monarchy, the kingdom of God on earth. Like a lion, the expectation for the monarchy was utter domination over her foes. But the cubs, if you read through the story, the cubs of the lioness end up colossal failures. The first cub is caught in the pit of the nations, verse 4. The second cub ends up, look at verse 7, devouring widows in cities. Rather than being a light to the nations, the land was appalled by the sound of his roaring, verse 7. 
And like his brother lion, this second lion is taken by the nation so that his voice should no more be heard on the mountains of Israel. Okay, so here we see what God expects, demands of those who will rule and reign with him. The expectation is they will bring a righteous, joyful rule on his earth. But with that authority comes the possibility that they end up being predators of the world. And God declares in the story of Israel's monarchy, he will not tolerate such evil to be done by his people. Now, we turn to the metaphor of the vine in a vineyard pictured that was planted by water, producing fruitful branches by reason of this abundant water. We see here that the strength of this vine, planted by abundant water, becomes the basis for pride in verse 11, as it towers aloft and is seen in its height. As quickly as it was exalted, it is plucked up and cast to the ground. And by verse 14, it has forfeited its privilege of ruling. And so here again, we see what God expects of those who will rule and reign with him. The call to rule and reign over God's world comes with an enormous power. But with that power comes the temptation of pride, of exalting ourselves rather than the God whose glory we were made to reflect. In her commentary on Ezekiel, Margaret O'Dell summarizes what chapter 19 laments. She writes, It is not the death of princes so much as a way of life, of seeking security through power and domination. That's the way of the world, she says. But for Jerusalem, and we might say for God's people today, this way has sealed her doom. Surely as the warning, surely that is the warning that remains for the people of God in in the year that we are in in the times before us. To be a member of God's family is an enormous privilege. Sons and daughters of the world's true Lord and righteous king. But it comes not merely with the promise of heaven after death, but with the assurance of a bodily resurrection to eternal life on earth, ruling and reigning with our Lord forever. But eternal life does not begin at death, nor even at our future bodily resurrection. Eternal life, according to our Lord, is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The testimony of the New Testament is that God has already given to us eternal life because 1 John 5:11 says, this life is in his son and we who believe in him are united to him. We already have been given eternal life. So do you see what that means then? Do you see the enormous privilege and expectation that remains on God's people in all times and in all places in every generation? As heirs of eternal life, don't you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6-2, that as God's saints, we will judge the world. 
And you say, well, I guess I didn't know that. <laughs> well, now you know. This is an awesome responsibility. And as God's people in this generation, we must not let iniquity be our ruin. What we must do then is to seek the new heart and the new spirit that God desires to give us. And he will give us as we are renewed day by day in the Savior whom we've been united to by faith. We sang earlier uh, a song, and I just grabbed my manuscript and wrote it in the margin, so I probably don't remember how it went. So Caleb, you have to help me. Upon his grace, I'll daily ponder. And then what's it say after that? And sing anew his praise. Do you know what you sang? The way to this new heart, this new spirit that God gives to us is the way of Jesus. It's being renewed day by day as you ponder his grace and sing his praise. We must learn to pray the prayer of Psalm 80, verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. We must renounce the power and pride of the world that knows only a rule by domination and force. We must believe that the cycle of recrimination, revenge, and retaliation can only be broken by the love and grace and forgiveness of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the only Savior of the world. So, let us who believe in him and who worship him come and be renewed by him again today. Let us pray. Father, what can we say? when we realize that what you did six centuries before Jesus was born in those events of exile was, yes, an act of judgment against the covenant people of God who had rebelled against you. But God is not faithless. He was true to his covenant and therein, amazingly, mysteriously, he planted and preserved his kingdom in a new Canaan. No longer would the kingdom of God be able to be confined to a piece of ground on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. The world would be his kingdom. How that would come to be true wouldn't be known until 600 years later when Jesus of Nazareth rode in humble on a donkey to Jerusalem and declared that he was the true temple 
and that all who believed in him, who received him by faith, would be joined together with him as living stones in this new temple of God. So if all of that is true, if Jesus actually achieved what he set out to do, then the good news of the kingdom of God for us today is that we are God's people, and in every generation, we are called to be faithful and loyal to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords. And the key to being loyal to him is to find that our hearts, apart from him, are evil, wicked, colluding with evil in all sorts of ways. But as we come and be renewed by Jesus day by day, as we ponder his grace and sing his praise, God, by his mercy and grace, and in keeping with the terms of the new covenant, gives us this new heart. He gives us this new spirit. And through us, advances his kingdom purposes in the world. That's who we are. Oh, give us, Lord, please, courage to live as faithful citizens of the kingdom of God in our homes, in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, as we ponder your grace and sing your praise. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.